Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte, and we have a lot of things happening at once today. And uh, we are going to get into as much of them as we can fit into two hours. We, of course, had uh, Joe Biden just addressing the U.N. General Assembly, which we will maybe get to chat about a little bit later. We've got economic news and economic fallout as the Federal Reserve later today wraps up a meeting that is expected to lead to another interest rate hike. We are going to talk about why Native Americans are so often left out of conversations about racism in the United States. We will talk about complaints from members of Congress that student debt relief will hinder military recruitment. We are going to look at the complaint Slain journalist Sharina Abu Akla's family has lodged with the ICC and a very damning new investigation into exactly how she was killed. We'll talk about Ron DeSantis being sued. And we are, of course, going to talk about the address by Russian President Vladimir Putin yesterday and what that indicates about the future of the war in Ukraine. We are going to play that address right now and then bring on a guest to help break it down. So we'll start off here with Vladimir. Vladimir Putin from earlier this morning on the new mobilization plan for the Russian military and other issues. Let's listen to Putin. Dear friends, the subject matter of my address is the situation in Donbass and the special military operation on its liberation from the neo-Nazi regime that seized power in Ukraine in 2013 as a result of the armed coup d'etat. I address you all the citizens of our country, people of various generations and age, to the people of our great homeland, to all who has united great historic Russia, to soldiers and officers, volunteers who are now fighting at the front line, who are their fighting position to our brothers and sisters, people of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic, Kherson and Zaporozhye regions, and other liberated territories, liberated from neo-Nazi regime. I'm going to speak about the necessary emergency steps to defend the sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity of Russia, about the support of willingness and aspiration of our compatriots to define their own future and to counter the desire of the Western elites who want to preserve their supremacy and they want to suppress any sovereign and independent centers of development, to continue to blatantly enforce their will on other countries and peoples, to impose their pseudo-values on them. The goal of the West to weaken and to eventually destroy our country they speak directly that in 1991 they managed to divide the Soviet Union and now the time has come to do the same with Russia. That it should collapse into many regions that will be at war with each other. And these are the plans they have been having for a long time. They were promoting armed groups in caucus. They were putting NATO infrastructure close to our borders. And for decades, they were cultivating hatred to Russia, first of all, and Ukraine, that they were turning into anti-Russia head bridge. And they turned Ukrainian people into cannon fodder, and they pushed them to start the war against our country. 
They started this war back in 2013. They were using armed forces against civilians. They organized genocide and terror against the people who refused to recognize the power that came to power in Ukraine as a result of coup d'etat. And after today's Kiev regime basically publicly refused to resolve the issue in Donbass peacefully, and they started talking about their willingness to have nuclear weapons, it became absolutely clear that the large-scale assault in Donbass, like it happened two times before, is inevitable. And then it would have led to the assault on the Russian Crimea, on the Russian Federation. That's why the decision about the preemptive military operation was the only possible step. Its main goal is to liberate the entire territory of Donbass, have always been the main goal and top priority. The Lugansk People's Republic has been almost completely liberated from neo-Nazis. There is still fighting going on in the Donetsk People's Republic. Over eight years, Kyiv regime has created multi-layered defensive infrastructure and assaulting them directly would have resulted in heavy casualties. That's why our armed forces and armed forces of the Donbass republics are trying to save lives and military equipment, and they are moving step by step, gradually liberating their territories and the cities and towns of their republics. They are liberating people who Kiev regime turned into human shields, as you know, Professional soldiers are participating in the special military operation who have contracts with the armed forces. And there are volunteer units who fight shoulder to shoulder with them. People of various age and professions, they follow the call of their heart to defend the people and the territory of Donbass. That's why I have instructed the Ministry of Defense to determine the legal status of a volunteer and of the fighters of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. They should have the same legal status as soldiers of the Russian army, including health care and social guarantees. And the special attention should be paid to organizing supplies for the volunteer units with equipment and material. To resolve the priority tasks to defend Donbass, our forces, using the plans and decisions of the Ministry of Defense and General Staff, have liberated vast territories of the Kherson and Zaporozhye regions and a number of other territories. As a result, there is a long line of contact that is longer, greater than 1,000 kilometers. And here is what I want to say publicly for the first time after the beginning of the special military operation, including during the talks in Istanbul, the Kiev representatives reacted to our suggestions and proposals quite positively. And we talked about guaranteeing security of Russia and guaranteeing its interests. But it was obvious that the West was not happy with the peaceful resolution. So after the compromise was reached, Kiev was directly instructed to undermine all the agreements. More weapons were pumped into Ukraine. The Kiev regime used new gangs of mercenaries and neo-Nazis. And the units trained by the NATO standard and led by the Western instructors joined the fight. At the same time, reprisals across Ukraine against their own citizens strengthened. And it started right after the coup d'etat, armed coup d'etat in 2013. The intimidation policy, terror, violence 
has been becoming more and more massive, more and more barbaric. I would like to emphasize we are aware that most people who live at the liberated territories, first of all, I'm talking about the historic lands of New Russia, they don't want to be under the neo-Nazi regime. In Zaporozhye, in Kherson, in Lugansk, in Donetsk, they can see the atrocities that neo-Nazi are carrying out in the areas they captured. Followers of Bandera and Nazi death squad, they torturing people, they put them to prison, they retaliate against civilians in Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic and Zaporozhye and Kherson regions before the hostilities more more than 7.5 million people used to leave. Many of them had to become refugees to leave their homes. And those who stayed, I'm talking about some 5 million people, they have to leave under constant shelling and rocket attacks against neo-Nazi gangs. They are carrying out terrorist attacks against civilians. And we have no right to leave people who are close to us to these tortures, we have to listen to their call who they want to determine their own future, their own fate. The parliament of the Lugansk and Donetsk republics and administration of the Zaporozhye and Kherson regions made a decision about carrying out referenda about the future of these regions and they appealed to us, to Russia, to support this decision. I would like to emphasize we will do everything to provide safe conditions to hold the referenda so that they could express their will and make the decision about their future and the decision that will be made by the majority of the people of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics of the Kherson and Zaporozhye regions, we will support this decision. Today, our armed forces, as I have said, are acting along more than 1,000 kilometer long front line. They are fighting not just against Nazi units, but against the collective West war machine. And in this situation, I think the following steps have to be taken. And it is completely adequate towards the threat that we are facing, namely to defend our motherland, its sovereignty and territorial integrity, to defend safety of the people at the liberated territories, I think we should suggest the proposal of the Minister of Defense and General Staff about starting partial mobilization in the Russian Federation. Once again, we're talking about partial mobilization. Only those citizens who are currently in the reserve will be called to arms. First of all, those who have certain experience, who served in the army, who has necessary skills and competence, they will pass additional military training before they will be sent to the units, considering the experience of the special military operation. The decree on partial mobilization has been signed in accordance with the legislation. We will inform about that chambers of the Federal Assembly and the State Duma. The mobilization will be launched today starting with September 21st. I instruct the heads of the regions to give any possible support in this effort. I would like to emphasize especially that the citizens of Russia who will be mobilized will receive the status and all the social guarantees and all the payments that the soldiers who have contracts with the army have. 
and the decree on the partial mobilization also stipulates certain additional measures on the state contract for the military industrial complex because these companies have the direct responsibility to increase the number of the military equipment to use additional industrial capacities and all the matters of the research and financial support of the military industrial enterprises should be resolved by the government immediately. Dear friends, in their aggressive anti-Russian policies, the West has crossed the line. We keep hearing threats against our country, against our people. Certain irresponsible politicians from the West, they don't just say about their plans to supply long-range assault weapons to Ukraine, systems that would allow them to strike Crimea and other regions of Russia. Such terrorist attacks, including using the Western weapons, are also used against the Belgorod and Kursk regions, using the contemporary systems, aviation, satellites, strategic unmanned aerial vehicles. And NATO is performing reconnaissance across the entire Russian border. In Washington, London, Brussels, they push Kyiv to try to move the hostilities to our territories. They don't even hide it when they are saying that Russia should be destroyed at the field of battle. And they should deprive us of any kind of sovereignty. They should rob our country of everything. They have started nuclear blackmail. I'm not only talking about the attacks against Zaporozhye nuclear power station that is promoted by the Western curators, but I'm talking about the statements about high-level representatives of the NATO countries about the possibility of using weapons of mass destruction against Russia, nuclear weapons. And those who make such statements against Russia, I would like to remind them that our country also possesses various type of strike weapons. And in some components, we have more modern weapons than NATO countries. And if the territorial integrity of our country is threatened to defend and protect our country and our people, we will use all the means that we have. And I'm not bluffing. The citizens of Russia can be confident that we will defend the territorial integrity and sovereignty of our country. And I would like to emphasize it with any means that we have in our possession. And those who are trying to blackmail us with nuclear weapons, I would like to remind them that the wind can blow towards them as well. In the destiny of our people, it is to stop those who want to dominate the world, who want to enslave our homeland, our fatherland. And we will do that now as well. That's how it will happen. I trust in your support. That was what Vladimir Putin had to say to his country earlier this morning. We are joined now by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda to break down uh, what, what we should understand from this message. Thanks for being here, Mark. Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. So, uh, you know, Putin addressed the the state of fighting, uh, this new military mobilization, the referendums that are coming up in the uh, states that recently declared independence from Ukraine and other parts of Ukraine, and uh, how Russia is going to respond to this counteroffensive. He also uh, confirmed, you know, I think what we have understood for a while, which is that Russia is at war with the collective West and blamed the West for scuttling early possibilities for peace, you know, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, re referring to um, 
Oh, well, maybe uh, alluding to Boris Yeltsin, Yeltsin, not Boris Yeltsin's, God, what am I thinking? Um, Boris Johnson's visit to (laughs) Kiev early on. Mark, let's start with this uh, mobilization because it is being described in different ways in English media, and I am uh, trying to understand what it actually is. It's being called calling in the National Reserve. It's being called uh, a draft or conscription. Uh, Who is being called up and what kind of numbers are we looking at? Yeah, so Russia has a million-man active-duty military and two million, shall we say, active reserves, reserves on the roster um, uh, that are that are able to be called up by uh, having recently completed their military service, just like like in the U.S. Uh, and um, the Russian special military operation thus far has by the government's own self-limitation, which I have long argued against, to just 150,000 soldiers, right, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to for this intervention in a country with a population of some 30 to 35 million, with some 40 to 50,000 East Ukrainians fighting alongside Russian forces. The Kiev regime claims that they have uh, mobilized, and in their case, it definitely means uh, a forcible conscription of a million soldiers. That's uh, almost completely an exaggeration, but even 500 to 600,000 put them at a significant manpower advantage, whereby Russia could not continue their um, offensive in Donbass when and defend all the territory that they had taken in Ukraine when the new uh, Kiev regime uh, counteroffensive strategy of attacking everywhere at once uh, in essentially uh, human wave attacks, um, uh, it, it was it was impossible with the sizes of Russia's military. I was talking about this several weeks ago on your show, as well as multiple other shows, and, and, and how it was a big problem. That problem has now been corrected. And this the size of what is being called up is 300,000 reservists, right? Uh, that's it. It is calling up the reserves. And they made clear that they're not calling up university students. They're not calling up anyone who hasn't already served in the military. They're not even they're They're only specifically calling up people who have specific military specialties like artillery and medics uh, that, you know, they they served a, a deal of time. Now, in the same speech, Shoigu also pointed out that they have two million uh, active roster reserves to call on, and another 25 million people in Russia who have had military experience. But it's only this 300,000. So out of the potential pool, it's like 1% to 2% of, of what's being called up. And they made clear who they're calling up uh, and who they're not. Um, and uh, this is a definite smart move. It's what I advised a long time ago. Actually, I advised it back in February, but um, it's better uh, late than never. Um, and the recognition that Russia is not fighting a regime in, in Kiev that seized power in Ukraine eight years ago, it is it is seriously is. I mean, when uh, the original Rus- uh, Ukrainian military, the Kiev regime military forces have all been been but destroyed. And there was a speech afterward by the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, when uh, he said that the Kiev regime's casualties are over 100,000 at this point, which is atrocious, 
but it, it tallies up with with the numbers uh, that that I've seen as well. So um, the, um, the the counteroffensive of, of the Kiev regime was stopped in the south, where Russia uh, put up a serious uh, defense, had their own defenses, and in the north, uh, in Kharkov, they prioritized and pulled. Uh, their troops out before the Kiev regime of uh, counteroffensive because they couldn't hold everything at the time. That will not be a problem now because um, coupled with the mobilization um, is uh, the fact that referendums are going to be held in these four former Ukrainian uh, uh, areas, uh, uh, Donetsk, Lugansk republics, as well as uh, Kherson and Zaporozhye in the south. And if they uh, choose in the referendum to seek the protection of Russia from this regime uh, and to integrate with the Russian Federation, uh, then it will be a matter of that entire million-man uh, active-duty military also being available to defend those borders, leaving the uh, uh, you know the uh, combat-experienced contract professional. Uh, fully professional uh, military to deal the offensive heavy lifting uh, still in the Donbass. Uh, so, you know, that's that's where it is looking forward. And I, I think that this is a definite game changer. Uh, although Putin still referred to it as a special military operation, uh, obviously the terms of that special military operation are changed. Yeah, I think that was something that maybe people expected to hear, the the sort of transition from special military operation into, into war, which we haven't heard. I also, sorry, I just keep getting hung up on all of the, you know, the ways this, this who is being called up or being described. So Russia has mandatory military service, I gather, right? It is, I would say, partial mandatory military service. People who uh, go to university, get accepted to university, you know, Russia has free higher education for those with good grades and the like, um, they, um, uh, you know, often do not serve. Uh, so right. the, the mandatory military service is really a partial mili a mandatory military service. Right. It looks like you, you're supposed to serve a year and there will be lots of exceptions made. Yeah. One year. And so, yeah. Like, yeah. like Israel. Yeah. And so maybe some of these people who have military service, because, again, it keeps being called conscription is a word that really sounds like you are uh, grabbing people off the streets and putting uniform on them. Uh, and it doesn't yeah. seem like that is exactly what it is, is it, happening. It here. is an it is, that is an inaccurate yeah. attempt to, of course, demonize uh, the process here. Um, and, it, you know, it's amazing how that is used incorrectly with Russia. But when the Western media is referring to the actual forced conscription where people are literally being grabbed out of nightclubs and cafes and on the streets and on the beaches, and there's plenty of video evidence uh, out of Ukrainian sources of exactly that happening, they never use the word conscription. They always use mobilization. And it's this type of framing they know, that is attended to affect the way you think about this on the respective sides. Right. Because we would consider there to be pretty, uh, pretty distinct lines between, you know, a reservist and a conscript. So uh, thank you for yes. Clearing that up. I, I want to talk about this. Uh, this is not a bluff line. Putin said, if the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we will certainly use all the means at our disposal to protect Russia and our people. This is not a bluff. 
I think we can take this is not a bluff at face value. What is maybe uh, about to be pretty complicated is Russian territorial integrity. If as of next week, uh, that is considered by the Kremlin to include uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk republics, as well as uh, the regions of Kherson and Zaporizhia. You know, what does that mean for the way fighting is being waged there? It, it means that the entirety of the of the one million active duty Russian military and the reserves would be available if necessary. It means there will be no repeat of Kharkov. Mm-hmm. There will not be an area of Ukraine that has been liberated from uh, the West-backed Putsch forces that that has to be sacrificed due to uh, strategic concerns again. There will be plenty of manpower available. And, I mean, you really have to—first uh, of all, uh, Western media is trying to blow this comment out of all context. Uh, you know, they're they're trying to say that Russia here is— threatening to use nuclear weapons. Now, nowhere in there did he actually say, he said, we will certainly make use of all weapon systems available to defend uh, the territorial integrity and sovereignty of our country. Well, what country isn't going to do that? I mean, I'm, even the Kiev regime is doing that, whether, you know, the, the, the legitimacy of that regime aside. Um, but if what they're not repeating is the paragraph directly before and after that, when Putin said, Statements made by some high-ranking representatives of legal NATO countries on the possibility and admissibility of using weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, against Russia. And then in the, directly in the paragraph below that, um, uh, again, uh, those who are using nuclear blackmail against us should know that the wind rose can turn around. He's saying that the West has threatened uh, you know, behind closed doors to him to use nuclear weapons on Russia. And he is making clear if that is the case, then Russia will certainly re- reply back. I mean, but the- that last part is being left out of all the discussion. I mean, really, also what I was thinking, though, is is if suddenly these are not contested areas of Ukraine, but are, uh, in fact, you know, part of the country of Russia, you know, uh, how do Ukraine and Ukraine's Western backers respond? Because so far, you know, the the United States has been supplying Ukraine with increasingly powerful weapons uh, at a slightly slower rate. Uh, So has uh, have several countries in Europe. But, you know, the U.S. has so far refrained from giving Ukraine weapons that can really reach uh, into Russian territory as as it is considered today. Right. Uh, Their ability. that's not correct. Well, their ability to hit Crimea came as something as a surprise. Well, okay, if that's not correct, I mean, I would think that, I don't know, do you think the the, Ukraine, I think the answer is clear. With the West, I think the answer is less obvious. Uh, Do they decide they don't care? uh, We're going to keep shelling what Russia is now saying is Russia and and risk. I mean, yeah, I mean, first of all, the, the White House clearly gave the green light to uh, attack Crimea. But it's more than just Crimea that has been attacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, American uh, weapon systems has been also used to shell Belgorod region mm-hmm. of, you know, regular, you know, uh, uh, Russia, you know, before all, you know, all of this started in 2014, uh, the Belgorod region knocking out the electrical systems, attacking the electrical systems in Russia uh, and shelling residential areas uh, across the border into Russia, right? If you're on the border, any weapon systems that the U.S. gives them 
I, you know, right. uh, can affect Russia and have been used there. I don't think this is going to change much in the West's calculus. They, of course, are not going to recognize the legitimacy uh, of, of the referendums. That's okay. Russia hasn't recognized the legitimacy of the sham elections that have been held in Ukraine since, uh, you know, the, the putsch seized power in 2014 either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, likewise, Russia doesn't recognize that uh, Kosovo was carved up as a NATO protectorate out of Serbia. Um, and uh, the U.S. doesn't recognize South Ossetia and Abkhazia as part of Russia. You know, that this is already, you know, there's a whole slew of uh, non-recognized states. During the whole course of the Cold War, the West uh, uh, NATO did not accept that the Baltics were part of the Soviet Union. That was that was never accepted. So I don't think this changes the political or the military calculus of the West at this point. What is really going to change that calculus is the greater man pool available to the Russian military. Now, finally, uh, you know, removing the, the hand tied behind the back and the kid gloves on the other hand, that nullifies what advantage the Kiev regime had managed with their uh, mixed results uh, counteroffensive thus far. Um, and the fact that the Western military stockpiles are nearly depleted and they've basically run out of what they can give uh, the Kiev regime that it can effectively use on the battlefield. Does this uh, speech signal anything about how Russia envisions uh, the future of this conflict? I I was curious your thoughts on this new article in Responsible Statecraft that predicts that a future Ukraine will look something like Syria, right, where you have uh, fighting that never really ends and governments that can never really govern. Uh, And and I wonder if you think for the parts of Ukraine that remain formally allied with Kiev after next week, if, if that is the future and if that's the case, you know, the... The United States has been content to create those scenarios, you know, in the Middle East. Uh, I'm I wonder, you know, how content the rest of Europe is going to be uh, to have such a sort of destabilizing force right there in its neighborhood. So I wonder what, what you think the future of Ukraine looks like. Yeah, the article you're referencing is uh, by Seth Harp in Responsible Statecraft. It's putting Ukrainian battle successes into cold, hard perspective. Um, this is an article that there's a lot of it I agree with and a lot of it I vehemently disagree with. I figured. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, that aside, uh, what you're specifically referring to at the end, that the future of Ukraine is a partitioned country, uh, a frozen conflict and a permanently destabilized Eastern Europe as the new uh, uh, it, it wouldn't even be a Cold War uh, boundary. Uh, a partitioned Ukraine would be now be a hot war boundary between Russia and NATO. I absolutely agree with. And I said that this would be the case in February. I mean, I've been saying exactly what he is saying here at the end, that this would be the end result of this conflict, that it would be a forever war, that it wouldn't end, that it would result in a partitioned and permanently destabilized, you know, Ukraine and a permanently destabilized area moving forward. And I I think Russia, the Russian government was well aware that this was the most likely result, but the consequences of a um, uh, Kiev regime uh, fully gaining control of all of Ukraine uh, after having ethno-politically cleansed uh, Donbass and Lugansk with state-armed and funded uh, Russian-hating neo-Nazi battalions uh, was was not, uh, you know, and uh, de facto NATO member uh, w- was not something that Russia could accept on their borders.
And of course, not to take anything away uh, from your predictions, because of course, this is why we like to continue talking to you, Mark, because you've been very accurate about uh, how this conflict is going to play out from the start. But also, I think, you know, anyone who is looking at what happens to uh, conflicts that the United States involves itself in and decides that it is going to um, heavily arm, you might have also been able to predict that, right? And I'm sure that that's something that you looked at. So my question is... Syria is a very good example. Sure. Uh, the U.S. The U.S. is still occupying all of East Syria, militarily occupying. Russia and the government control the majority of the country, and Turkey and their pet jihadists are occupying the north in a three-way Mexican standoff, and that's been going on for years. That somehow Russia and uh, the U.S. military have successfully deconflicted without going to war there. Syria, you have uh, Libya, you have uh, Somalia, you know, there are a lot of examples. My question is, Iraq, yeah, I mean, of course, we we were a little more active in Iraq than we have been so far in in Ukraine. My question is, is really, what do you you make of Europe? I mean, this is, the United States, again, remains an ocean away from this, which is not to say we won't experience any consequences here, but it is Europe that will be, you know, and of course Russia, but Europe on on the Western side that is going to be directly and physically impacted by this. Did they possibly not think that this was going to be the outcome? Do they not care? What do you think was in in their head? I mean, I'm asking you to, you know, consider their thought processes, but to the extent that you can. Yeah, I don't I don't think that there's any real, real statesmen that have full agency and and, um, you know, uh, what it takes to be a great statesman uh, in the EU at the current moment. I don't think there has been for quite a while. Jacques Chirac might have been one of the last ones. Um, and they show no agency or willing to stand up for their own interests that might be separate from the United States, uh, in that they are really effective client states. And they are walking into this knowing that it's they who are both economically going to suffer catastrophically and uh, in security terms, now going to have a permanent zone of uh, uh, of unsecurity, of, of insecurity uh, on uh, you know their eastern borders uh, as a result of this geopolitical power play to to try to flip Ukraine starting in 2014. Um, and I mean, when Viktor Orban is the only realist and pragmatist pointing out the consequences of all of this. That's pretty sad because I can't say that I agree with Viktor Orban much domestically, but in foreign policy, he seems to be the only one capable of even conceiving that Europe might have foreign policy and interests separate from the United States. Yeah. And a constant economic drain, because it, at least in the case of, you know, Syria and Libya, uh, the United States can kind of walk away without having to make any efforts to support their economies. And you think eventually this might be the case for Ukraine, but not not any time too soon. Oh, no, I mean, I, I, I do not see I mean, Ukraine is going to be an economic way. First of all, they're going to walk out of this. You know, whatever rump state is left controlled by whatever regime emerges out of uh, you know, the regime that's in Kiev now, uh, several years down the road, probably, they're going to still owe tens of billions of dollars now to the West, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of this is is being given, you know, a lot of this financial and military aid is being given on 
lend lease terms and so forth. And all of Ukraine's industrial capacity and the majority of its resources like coal, steel production were in the east. So, yeah, they may not even walk out of this with a port city. Yeah. I also wonder if you notice something of a shift in the way Russians, Russia's actions and I guess uh, responsibility for these actions are being reported in the English language media. Because I, I feel like for most of the spring, uh, any move that Russia made, it came directly from Putin and demonstrated that he alone was responsible for sending his country on this rogue path against the wishes of the many Russians who objected to uh, to to any of these moves. And uh, it seems like over time that's kind of shifted. And this mobilization is being described as responding to critics who had been complaining that Putin hadn't committed enough in Ukraine to to achieve uh, their objectives there. And so I wonder, you know, uh, you alluded to this early on, who, who this move is going to appease in Russia, if it's going to alienate anybody and, uh, you know, on how much the Russian government really has to has to kind of worry about different constituencies anyway. Yeah. So, so I mean, yeah, Russia, there is a certain percentage of Russians that have objected to this. Right. Uh, as there is in any country going to war, nothing like the million man marches against the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Um, they uh, even U.S. polling now, U.S. polling, not Russian polling, has shown that some 80 mid 80s percentage of Russians uh, have supported uh, the, uh, you know, the Russian intervention, special military operation in Ukraine up to this point. I don't expect that will change. The major Russian opposition parties, the communists, the liberal democratic party of Russia, not liberal, not democratic, not really a party, but anyway, um, uh, and, and even, you know, they have actually uh, been calling for this for a long period of time and have actually been presented the Kremlin as weak for not doing this earlier. And there seems to be a lot of broad sentiment exactly towards that. The Kremlin has not has failed or the, the Putin administration failed until now by not doing what was necessary for a what what has become an existential military and economic uh, war against Russia. Uh, so um, I, this is going to be more popular than it is not in in Russia. That that is a fact that the West doesn't want to admit. It is their usual tactic when whenever they are, uh, you know, having a a um, an adversary country to try to demonize and distill the country down to one leader that they can, uh, you know, uh, pillory as some type of satanic figure and remove and all the problems go away. Whether that was uh, Saddam Hussein, whether that was uh, Muammar Gaddafi, whether that was um, Bashar Assad. Uh, you know, various leaders in South America, the same thing and, and the same thing with Putin. And, uh, you know, uh, I recent headlines in The Guardian said the problem uh, headline article it got to the crux of this. The problem is not Russia. Uh, the problem is or the problem is not Putin. The problem is Russians, the Russians. No, actually, the problem is you. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is the Western political elite. But, you know, that's the way they're already framing this now, that that Russia is an entire 140 million nation of 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 monsters that resent the U.S., uh, you know, global hegemony and and don't want to see uh, Ukraine turned as a battle platform against them, much like the Chinese don't want to see Taiwan turned into a battle platform against them. 
That was international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to some domestic issues. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte, and I'm going to talk about a story I've been wanting to get into for a while. Uh, allegations of corruption in Ryan Zinke's interior department. Uh, I also want to get into what it means to call six individuals, quote, full indigenous representation in the U.S. Congress, and ask why Native Americans are so often absent from discussions of the consequences of racism in the United States. Joining me is Mohawk activist and educator John Kane. He's producer and host of the Let's Talk Native podcast and co-host of Resistance Radio on Pacifica Radio, New York. John, thanks for being here again. Well, thanks for having me, Michelle. It's, uh, it's great to join you again. Uh, let me ask you first about this story NPR ran yesterday saying that for the first time in more than 230 years, Congress has full indigenous representation. Uh, the headline caught my eye because I just didn't know what it could mean. What they mean is that for the first time in more than two centuries, there is, uh, here are the categories. There is a Native American, an Alaska Native, and a Native Hawaiian, all serving in the U.S. House of Representatives. And, you know, it was one of these representatives, Kai Kahele of Hawaii, who made the statement. And so I don't want to take away from his celebration. It just... Also, I think we have to acknowledge is a celebration of some very fraud, uh, broad, uh, externally imposed categories of human beings. And so now in all of the United States Congress, we have a total of six indigenous representatives of the people who, of course, long predated Europeans on this continent and who still live here and who still contest the terms of the division of this continent. But it just seems very odd to say, uh, congratulations, we've got one of each type. And so I don't want to take away from the value of of this form of representation, uh, but it also seems very distant from what have ever been, what would have ever been a sort of fair representation of indigenous people's interests. Uh, so it clanged for me, and I wonder what you make of this moment. Well, I'll take away from this type of representation <laughs> okay. because these people are the most assimilated uh, people of Native descent that uh, that could possibly exist, right? I mean, these guys were assimilated enough that white people would vote for them. And let's be clear, the, the three that they're talking about here specifically, it's white people that, that voted them in. I mean, I'm not saying Native people didn't vote, but mm -hmm. Native people don't vote at a very high rate anyway. But certainly, they aren't there representing us. They're representing Alaska. Hawaii and Kansas. That's who they represent. They're not. And, and if you want to break down their congressional district, you know, you're not going to find that they're that, you know, that they represent, you know, native people. They aren't there to serve us. They're there to serve the states that they represent and the congressional districts that they represent. That's like saying that for the, that the Supreme Court uh, uh, has full representation because Clarence Thomas is sitting on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't represent 
black people uh, as a Supreme Court justice. He might be black, but he's not there representing black people. I think also, I mean, it's worth noting that, as you point out, they represent uh, their districts, which have probably uh, been gerrymandered to racist ends. I, I think it was uh, Ruth Buffalo in, in South Dakota who uh, was leading complaints that uh, they were trying to redistrict uh, South Dakota voting districts to erode any power Native Americans would have to vote as a block, uh, which does, you know, bring me into uh, this conversation that I know you've been wanting to have. You know, we we talk a lot on this show and we talk a lot with you about the sort of formal and structural mechanisms that are used to discriminate discriminate against Native people, right? The, these weird ways the U.S. has designed laws and criminal justice jurisdictions to interact with tribe, the, the weird ways uh, laws are created after the fact to squeeze wealth out of Native nations, as in the case with uh, casinos and gambling. Um, and I, I think it's important to understand how those barriers work. But as you point out, the whole reason those barriers exist is racism uh, and to support the theft of land. And yet racism against Native Americans really goes undiscussed in the United States, even as we are sort of engaged in a long term kind of conversation about it. And, and I want to ask why you think racism is not part of conversations about Native people in the U.S. Well, uh, frankly, we even get blocked by other marginalized people. And I have to cite specifically the horrendous thing that happened in Buffalo, where a white supremacist went into a tops friendly market on the east side of Buffalo, killed 10 black people, um, injured three others, and went there specifically because of his racist ideology. That prompted a lot of um, um, support for the black community. I mean, it took it took dead people. Mm -hmm. It took a killing to get some of that stuff to happen. And it even prompted the local NPR station to, to begin a whole series that they call What Next? And they mean What Next after um, May 14th, where it's a conversation that airs twice a day, uh, five days a week, about racism. And we aren't even asked to participate in the conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are excluded from a conversation about uh, about racism. And in fact, when the Senecas were uh, were trying to approach Albany, the uh, the state capital, to talk about their upcoming negotiations over uh, a, a new gaming compact, they said they you know the, the Senate representative said something specifically about racism, and and the the majority assembly leader from Buffalo who is black. Crystal People Stokes, she said, how dare you mention racism after what happened to my people? Well, again, who are her people? She's a Democrat, and she's there representing the Democratic Party as, as a state assembly uh, member. Her black, her people aren't just black people. She's voted in by white people, too. And for her to somehow say that we are forbidden to even mention racism when we're talking about how marginalized and oppressed we are, I mean, this. So we even have black people pushing it, and I'm not saying all black people. Because I got to tell you, I listened to that program on the other on the NPR station, and more than half of the guests that have been on that What's Next program have tried to mention Native people uh, in, in that conversation about racism, and the host just gloss right over it. So no, it, it almost seems like, and I hate to use that expression, you know, uh, oppression Olympics here, but. It's like when we use the word Holocaust, we get condemned because somehow we're, we're somehow denying the Jewish Holocaust. When we mention racism, we get pushed back even from certain black leaders because we're denied the, even even the usage of the word. 
And clearly, as as you and I have talked about in the past, and you brought up here just now, the only explanation for the treatment that Native people receive is overt racism. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I do think I do think setting up an oppression Olympics is a tactic, a very useful tactic to keep people sort of fighting amongst themselves. And as you say, certainly. Uh, not everyone, not even most people fall for it, but it is a sort of it provides a like convenient red herring to distract from, you know, uh, white supremacy. Right. And everyone who is not included in it. But it is it is wild. And, and I do wonder if part of it is because of, I don't know, media bias. Right. East East Coast media bias. Uh, oh, but absolutely. Of course, I think that's that's true. But you, but you also do have, you know, a, a certain level of um I guess animosity that comes amongst, especially the the most political, um, uh, high high achieving political figures in the non white community. So you 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 you're going to basically get people carrying water for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, and they don't want to have a conversation about how their policies that that either party or both parties are responsible for has contributed to the 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 you know, abject poverty that exists on native territories. I mean, we weren't born poor. We, that, that we're uh, the poverty on native territories is, is a, is again, a function of, of racist policies from, from the federal government, regardless of who's in, who's in office. Yeah. I mean, how do you, what, what do you think people should do to try to, to try to, you know, acknowledge that? I think it's, I don't, I honestly, it is, it is very bizarre. It comes down, you know, when you talk about crime statistics, um, you know, if Native people are not sort of excluded from uh, the numbers of people shot by police or have violent interactions with police, often actually per capita, they are they are at the top. And it is, you know, I think it is just a continued, I think ultimately the, the idea would be to simply erase the idea of Native people still living in the U.S. You know, I, I think that's well, part that's of just it. it. I, I think there's a really an effort to erase us as a as a group that is still opposes this kind of subjugation. So mm-hmm. you 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 kind of ignore the uh, those statistics. And and of course, it's easy to ignore the statistics when we are such not just a marginalized people, but a depopulated people. I mean, mm-hmm. we were once the 100 percent of the population on this continent. And now we're less than one one percent of the population. So, you know, while as a percentage of our population, we rank highest in all of the categories that nobody wants to be as as a, a matter of sheer numbers. We're still a relatively small number. So we don't get the representation. And again, again, it even gets back to the, your, your original uh, conversation about these elected officials. We, we can't get people in places that represent us. They they have to be elected by. The party, uh, you know, um, apparatus to you know to get in those positions. So that we aren't represented. In fact, if you wanted us to be represented in uh, in places like the federal government, you would have a literal. We would literally have you know diplomatic relations. They would be political uh, conversations. Yeah. They would not be okay. Well, you know, I I got I was come back to uh, I think it was um, McConnell, Mitch McConnell, who. Once, once was asked about reparations for black people. What do you mean reparations? We gave you a black president. It's like, oh, so that's it. We a president who's half black got elected. So now black people no longer have any, uh, you know, have any gripes against the United States. Well, you know, 
this is something I was thinking also. I wonder if it's because, you know, when it comes to other uh, minority groups in the United States who have experienced, you know, and continue to experience different types of discrimination, you know, you can offer programs like, you know, you can talk about reparations for black people. You can talk about uh, affirmative action and other programs to help uh, level the playing field when it comes to access to education and and other things. Um, But, you know, when it comes to actually trying to uh, make right to the indigenous population, it comes back to land. Right. And that is the, the thing that the U.S. Yeah. government is is not prepared to do. I mean, of course, we're not prepared to give reparations to anybody either. Uh, right. But but they have made these other sort of incremental steps in trying to equalize things. But they're not. Well, and that's why, that's they're why they're why not getting on board conversations about things like residential schools. Yeah. I said, don't even talk to me about reconciliation. Let's look at what was taken during the 150 years of residential schools. And what was taken was land and autonomy. You want to talk about reconciliation? We need restoration of land and we need restoration of our, of our political and, and our cultural autonomy. And that's what, you know, and that's a conversation that nobody in U.S. politics wants to talk about from either party. John, I'm going to I want to ask you uh, just very briefly about uh, this Ryan Zinke story. Um, But I have a feeling that we will hit our 1 p.m. break. So what will happen is I'm going to ask you this question. Uh, You can give me a sort of uh, start of the answer and then we'll take this break and then uh, go over for for just a second onto the other side of the hour. Uh, But so let's talk about. Trump's interior secretary. Uh, I mean, finding uh, corruption in the Trump administration is like shooting fish in a barrel. But but basically, in this particular instance of dishonesty by Zinke, it, it seems like career uh, interior department experts were prepared to approve a casino application by two Connecticut tribes. Uh, they had approval letters drafted and being circulated when suddenly... The political leadership of the department changed course. And when they changed course, they didn't even actually reject the application. They just sort of put it into limbo, right? Saying, like, actually, it's not appropriate for us to to weigh in on it at this time, which made it even harder for the tribes to figure out how to respond and how to move forward or how to make a new plan. Um, And... After some investigation, what do you know? It turns out that the head of the Interior Department and his associate deputy secretary, who was the one who directly rejected uh, the deal after these approval letters were being circulated, they had been having conversations with a competing casino for months, and then they lied about it during a watchdog investigation. Um, You know, none of this to me seems, I I guess, particularly uncommon. Uh, But now you have Zinke running for Congress, and it seems like an opportunity to point out, you know, how pervasive corruption can be in these agencies. And so I want to ask, you know, what what you think this episode uh, says to you about, you know, uh, the way that tribes are treated by the Department of Interior. And I have taken us up to the break. So, John, we'll, we'll take this quick break and I'll get your answer on the other side of the hour. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're talking to Mohawk activist and educator John Kane. We're going to come back to him in just one sec. Welcome back. 
Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kane, host of the Let's Talk Native podcast and co-host of Resistance Radio. Uh, John, I had been asking about Ryan Zinke, Trump's DOI, and corruption. Yeah, well, let me just weigh in. I mean, when when you have to, we have to decide whether this is Ryan Zinke's corruption or Trump's corruption. First, let me just say that Trump hated hates native people. I mm-hmm. mean, and he blames his failure as a casino mogul specifically on native gaming. Ooh. He went before Congress, and here's this guy with more makeup and hair work than a drag queen, saying that the native people that he was arguing about didn't look Indian to him. Oh, I mean, no. it's like it, the absurdity level is, 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 you know, off the charts. Even the Senecas, um, and we talked about the Seneca gaming situation, They, the previous Interior Department before Trump's actually issued a statement uh, condemning the revenue sharing uh, uh, that the Senecas were involved with with New York State. And Trump's uh, Interior Department withdrew that entire uh, opinion letter that came from the Interior Department. So, yeah, these guys, you know, have worked cooperatively, Zinke and Trump, to really, really rail against native gaming. And, you know, and, and that's kind of been uh, been what we've experienced. Now, I mean, so we when we talk about the current Interior Secretary, Deb Hallen, you know, you got to ask, how independent is, is her view on some of these things different from, uh, from Joe Biden? So when we don't get, I mean, these Interior Department secretaries, are beholden to the president. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to give Ryan Zinke a pass, but let's be clear, he was serving, uh, he was he served at the pleasure of Donald Trump, who is, who is, you know, an overt racist and has expressed much of that racism towards Native people. And, you know, and we didn't get a whole lot of help out of uh, out of Deb Haaland, even though, you know, she, again, supposedly broke that glass ceiling by being the first Native cabinet secretary. So, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to separate the roles of these interior, you know, or these cabinet members and the president they serve. I think that's, that's such a good point about, uh, about Trump also in his history with the uh, casino gambling. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think you think that's exactly right. That was John Kane. He's host of the next Let's Talk Native podcast. He co-hosts Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica Radio New York. John, it was great to talk to you again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We are going to uh, skip right ahead now and talk uh, about some reporting we have seen over the last couple of weeks on the recruiting crisis in the U.S. armed forces. And in particular, break down some of, I mean, I remain astonished that people will say this out loud, but several people have, uh, several members of Congress, uh, complaints that if young people are less poor, they'll be more difficult to coerce into military service. Joining us to talk about this is Director of Veterans for Peace, Garrett Reppenhagen. Garrett, thanks for being here. Hey, good to be back. Thank you very much. So it is wild to me that ever since Joe Biden announced plans for limited student debt relief across the board, Republicans have been saying the policy will weaken in the words in this instance of Representative Don Bacon, quote, our most powerful tool at the exact moment we are experiencing a crisis in recruiting. 
So yes, uh, uh, student debt is is the most powerful tool for recruiting for the military. Uh, he is not the first to say this. He will not be the last. I uh, said uh, to start, I am surprised you'd come right out and say this, uh, that, you know, it's important for us to have debt and poverty as a lever to compel people to take on jobs that include killing and dying that they otherwise wouldn't want to do. Um, so, so let's start there. Uh, should we accept this premise that student debt is a tool to entice otherwise reluctant military recruits. Is this debt relief going to make recruiting harder? <laughs> I mean, it, it probably will. You know, it's it's uh, you know, it's 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 almost yeah. it's weird. It's refreshing to actually hear uh, someone in leadership talk about what most most veterans already know. There's an economic draft, mm-hmm. and you know, it's it's not surprising we see massive levels of recruitment in black, brown, and poor neighborhoods mm-hmm. throughout America. You know, the, the benefits, there's there's probably a gigantic book of a thousand reasons to join the military. And, and most of them are guys to, like, add some sort of marginal social economic upward mobility for, for people who serve. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I certainly joined as a high school dropout in the military one month before September 11th. Uh, to get college benefits, to earn my way into a classroom, to to try to put myself on par with privileged people who didn't have to make the same sacrifices to go to college, mm-hmm. you know. And and f- people are looking at the same reasons as as healthcare if they're they have family members that are sick and they need money and they need you know employment and you know they need to take care of people. These these are also other economic pressures on people in poverty and in poor situations that that are driving us into military service because there's not a lot of other better options. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about why um, recruiting is struggling, because I think, you know, there is still enough poverty to go around for the military. But as of the end of August, uh, the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps and the Army were all struggling to meet recruiting goals. Uh, The Air Force told Stars and Stripes at the time that it expected to meet its goals basically by the skin of its teeth. Uh, An article in CNBC reckoned that the Marines and the Navy would probably also get there, but that the Army uh, might, you know, barely get half of its recruiting target. And so I I wonder if you have any update on that. Well, I mean, I I think the estimated amounts, they're going to fall short about Mm -hmm. 15,000. Um, which is, it's, it's better than half, but it certainly isn't their goal of 60,000. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're in trouble and they're, they're not meet, meeting their goals. They haven't met their goals in quite some time. You know, I think last year their goal was 57,000, which was a reduction from 2020, which their goal was 61,000. This is just the army, uh, army numbers that seem to be the most impacted, uh, by this recruiting situation. So, I, I don't see them meeting their goals. Um, you know, we'll we'll see. They've they've moved about eighty percent of their recruitment budget into uh, digital spaces mm-hmm. with either social media, online gaming, um, you know, things like that to try to really shift where they were recruiting before, which was need any conversations in shopping malls and high schools. Uh, and since COVID, they've really moved that into having more of an online presence. Sure. Gamify it. Gamify recruitment. Um, Mm -hmm. I I would like to think that uh, this recruitment crisis is the result of young people, you know, rethinking war or rethinking, you know, the the wars that the U.S. chooses to involve itself in. Um, But the stories I am reading about recruiting say the problem is low unemployment, 
Uh, It's too easy to get a job in the private sector to want to join the military, plus a lack of physical fitness. Um, uh, The CDC said an estimated 71% of young Americans are unfit for military service, mostly because of obesity, education deficits, criminal records, and drug use. And so to respond to that, the Army has apparently begun its own pre-basic training camps, one to improve physical fitness and another to boost scores on the Armed Service Vocational Aptitude Battery Test, which is in itself a pretty sad reflection that you have the army having to basically step in where public health and public education is failing and try to get people, you know, healthy and educated enough to to then join. And so, you know, I, I wonder if you can talk to us about what you what you identify as uh, as the barriers to recruitment and also, you know, what what it means that, you know, we we are sort of failing people so badly that they can't even meet the, the you know, the, the lowest threshold for serving in the armed forces. Mm. Well, I mean, obviously, these these issues are all interconnected, right? Mm-hmm. We we live in a capitalist society and our institutions bend towards our economic drivers. And that includes the same reasons that compel, you know, our society to be more overweight, um, less educated and have mental health problems, have have drug addiction, obviously, you know, depression issues. Um, you know, that's seventy one percent of youth that don't qualify for military service. You know, is you know that's. I'd I'd love to see what they're actually looking at. Are they looking at individuals that are coming to actually apply to become part of the military, and seventy seventy one percent of them aren't qualifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's a different population than just generally looking at the population, whole population of youth in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be, you know, those are folks that are actually willing to come to the table. But I think there's other conditions too, right? 79% of recruits have a relative who served. Mm-hmm. But right now in the United States, less than 1% of our population is currently, currently serves in the military. Mm-hmm. That's the least uh, percentage in American history. So if if less people are being connected to relatives who serve and most people that join have relatives who served, that's a that's a that's a dwindling population of people because the burden of military service is upon the same individuals to be redeployed over and over again and 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 basically be used and try to encourage them to make a lifetime career out of the military rather than serve, you know, one term and get out. Yeah. And I mean, this is the, the sort of flip side of the of the coin is that, again, as you say, the, the burden uh, falls disproportionately on an exceedingly small cohort of the population who are increasingly, who you know, whose lives and lifestyles and life experiences are really separate from the rest of civilians who aren't part of the military. And so, you know, it, it again, is, is sort of another... Um, manifestation of uh, polarization in American society. It also seems like, again, I I, I wouldn't want to serve in, in the U.S. military, but, you know, uh, is this also a signal that we are, we are a nation that cannot anymore agree on who we are and what we should be for, right? It feels like the, the the flip side of this coin is that you know we we are seeing a decline in sort of social cohesion and a desire to sort of uh, work toward group goals and I, I wonder if that is something that you know we we should be aware of as we maybe look at at the trouble the military is having in in recruiting and go good <laughs> you deserve it <laughs> yeah well I mean you see this evolution I think in all of American society right now there's 
you know, there's less of a trust in, I think, you know, less faith in our institutions and our systems, you know, who's, who's basically representing us in the leadership in America, um, what our nationalist identity is. Um, I think is in is large contrast right now. There's a lot of conflicts there. So if you're looking at, you know, economic desperation as a, you know, way to the primary motivator to like risk your life for your nation state. Um, but at the same time, hold up these myths about what military service is, joining something bigger than yourself, um, you know, the patriotic angle, mm-hmm. uh, community defense, you know, defending your, your neighbors, um, you know, and all these other things, they actually contrast against each other. There's conflicts there. And uh, you, you, can't, you can't sell people both at the same time because you, you realize that one's a lie and one's not. So, you know, are you going to try to, you know, benefit as a pathway to marginal social economic mobility? Or are you, are you selling something about the values of, of Americans and why you need to serve, serve your country? Because this is going to impact how people thank me for my service in the future, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because if I'm just a mercenary and that's just, we're just going to put that on the table. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's really going to change the dynamic of how we view our U S military and the jobs that we're doing. Yeah. Well, this, this is sort of uh, related to the, the other question I wanted to ask, which is, yeah, what if the military continues to fall short of these, these goals? Do we, you know, do we, uh, change our view of, of what service means? Do we also change our strategy? Right. Uh, I don't know. Do you, do you start to have a mandatory service and a, and an enlarged, uh, reserve pool? Do, does the sort of, you know, the decision makers decide, you know what, we'll, we'll send fewer U S troops and we'll just do more of what we have been doing in, in Libya and Syria and Ukraine, where we arm other people to fight our battles for us. Does, does this, you know, if, if this goes on, in addition to changing, you know, what it means to serve, do do we see a shift in uh, how our forces get deployed? Well, I'm certain there's corporations that see this as an opportunity, oh, right? Yes. We're already moving towards a privatized, uh, you know, military and a lot of other aspects. Mm-hmm. So why not lean into, you know, more private contractors and, yeah, getting getting other nationalities to fight our conflicts and just arming them uh, brings money to Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and, and you know, other corporations while while you have folks like uh, you know Blackwater types and khaki types that are making money on large contracts to fight fight these conflicts uh, without actual like enlisted service members, um, you know I think I think that's all very very much potential. I think if if we get in a serious conflict in the future, um, certainly they could reenact the draft and that will work for a short time mm-hmm. because. You know, for a while, you'll have a flood of a lot of military members. But, you know, just like in the Vietnam conflict, eventually that breaks down. And, um, you know, there's social social contracts that we have with our citizens that um, start to make uh, political risks when you make decisions to have a have an actual military draft. So those are all questions I think that'll be weighed by whatever, you know, urgency of the conflict is that we get ourselves involved in. Can I ask also these these uh, different private contractors? They probably pay more, right? The idea that you know the the the, the sort of image that this raises is private contractors sort of uh, uh, siphoning away from the pool of of actual military service members. Uh, to uh, it's just it's just an ugly thought. Yeah, that's it's definitely some some you know temporary levels of of more payment, but. 
you know, also these contractors aren't going to get to go and apply to VA healthcare when they're, they get done with working for Blackwater. Yeah. So, um, so you're taking these, these really large risks, uh, you know, joining an outfit like that and, and deploying somewhere under, under that effort, because if you do get hurt, you're, you're probably not going to get compensated. Yeah. Yeah, no, but you know, if you want to go for a big quick paycheck, I can see how it could be it could be tempting. It's just a, it's an ugly trend across the board. Mm-hmm. Garrett Reppenhagen, you are the director of Veterans for Peace. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, where should our listeners go to find more of the work that you're doing? Well, we're on all the social media sites and uh our our website is veteransforpeace.org, so check us out there. Thank you so much for joining us. Everybody go and check out the the work that's going on at Veterans for Peace. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk about Letitia James's big announcement and uh, some other international and domestic issues. Stay tuned. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. We have a lot to get into now. We have some more news on how the U.S. is going to help Afghanistan. Some air quotes floating around that word. Uh, we have a new and very damning report providing more detail uh, about the death of Sharina Abu Akla. Uh, we have uh, a conversation on the future of migrant transportation stunting and the political future of the latest man to try to get in on that game, Ron DeSantis. But also we have the news that was breaking just about an hour ago. Uh, that New York Attorney General Letitia James has announced a civil fraud lawsuit against Donald Trump and quite a few of his associates and businesses. And so we are going to start there with our guest, Ted Rawl. He's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he also co-hosts the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Hi, Ted. Oh, you, you, we got you, Ted? I'm good. You sound echoey, but good. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I took my echo pills this morning. Um, <laughs> if, well, let's just talk about the states of our beings for a while and forget all this New York civil fraud lawsuit garbage. No, um, this is, of course, uh, what we had been anticipating since yesterday. Letitia James has announced a civil fraud lawsuit against Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Ivanka Trump, Alan Weisselberg, uh, Jeffrey McConney, someone I've never heard of, uh, the Donald J. Trump Revocable Trust and the Trump Organization and some other businesses. They're all accused of flagrantly manipulating property valuations to deceive lenders, insurance brokers, and tax authorities into giving them better rates on bank loans and insurance policies and to reduce their tax liability. And so what Letitia James is seeking is that uh, Trump and everybody else named be barred from serving as executives at any company in New York, that the Trump organization be barred from acquiring any commercial real estate or getting any loans from New York financial institutions for five years. And they want some $250 million worth. uh, They want to recover that amount of what James says are are ill-gotten gains received through these alleged deceptive practices. And 
This is not a criminal prosecution, but James said she has referred possible violations of federal law to the Justice Department and the IRS. So, I mean, I guess I'll start with just how how big a deal is this? Well, uh, it's certainly, in a way, a a big breaking news. Sky is blue. Uh, Mm -hmm. We knew that Donald Trump uh, was a, uh, you know, lied about his net worth. That's a, a story that goes back to the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, when he ran for, announced for, uh, president, for president in 2015, he wrote in big capital letters on his net worth, $10 billion, all <laughs> B. Um, you know, he, newsflash, he wasn't. And yeah, newsflash, he, he exaggerated his net worth repeatedly to, uh, you know, places like Forbes and banks and real estate uh, partners. So I guess the news here is that's illegal. Yeah. And um, I'm kind of wondering, by the way, just parenthetically, what New York would do with a quarter of a billion dollars if they happen to recover it, because I don't think, you know, the state really lost that money. I think other people lost that money. Uh, but, you know, that's a separate question. Uh, it's a big deal. It's a, it, I think it's a big deal morally and legally for Trump. The good news for Trump is that this is a civil action filed in a New York court. And speaking as a New Yorker who's still waiting for my initial trial hearing in a case that I filed in 1999. Wow. I don't think I don't think that Donald Trump is, has a lot to worry about between now and Election Day 2024, uh, you know, or for that matter, before he expires naturally and uh, goes up to, you know, visit the queen and her corgis in the sky. So, but, but this does, you know, it's worrisome. Uh, she's made some very serious allegations. She's, uh, there's, there's a criminal referral here. Uh, this is, this was anticipated as the biggest legal jeopardy he faced. I think it certainly tarnishes him politically. Uh, you know, it's kind of like he is a crook, or you know, very likely is a crook, mm-hmm. is a strongly accused crook. Um, but it's not a criminal indictment yet. Uh, no one's being frog marched. Mm-hmm. And if they thought they had enough to charge him with a criminal offense, they would have, and they didn't. Uh, so it's a mixed bag. I mean, frankly, it's a it's a relief to see one of these come to some kind of fruition, right? Because I've been saying, as you know, all along, sh- I am sure, you know, I am sure if you go investigating, looking for fraud, you will you will find it, right? And so now they have found, you know, they have made allegations of fraud that they presumably have some evidence for, and we will see um, where this lawsuit goes. Um, but it's also, you know, I wonder how far back. I don't know what the, if there is a statute of limitations on some of these issues or 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 what that statute of limitations is. Again, it just raises the question. Surely no one had no one became aware of of these practices in 2020. You know what I mean? And so it's I'm I'm glad, but again, you have to come back to the the, the timing of this. I, I wonder I wonder how far back they dare look before what happens is you reveal that actually uh, this was sort of an open secret and everybody knew about it and nobody did anything until there was a political motivation. Well, my understanding, and I just did some preliminary googling as a cartoonist, fake lawyer, uh, <laughs> that it is that the, the that the statute of limitations in New York for fraud is. Uh, seven years, mm-hmm. as it is for really uh, most things. And so it's, you know, it's. Uh, I doubt that they went much further back than that, or even maybe that far back. But we will see mm-hmm. when we read. I haven't had a chance to read the 222-page lawsuit. 
um, and I will, mm-hmm. but, and I'm sure it's, you know, ex- incredibly exciting bedtime reading, um, but it's going to, you know, I, I think uh, there's going to be plenty there. I mean, the thing is, he committed these acts in plain sight. He repeatedly lied about how much he was worth. I mean, there's tons of stories going back, as I said, to the 1990s of him calling and kvetching with the editor of Forbes that said that, you know, Forbes wasn't like listing him as as being as wealthy as he wanted to be listed. You know, Mm -hmm. amazingly, Forbes never asked for any proof of how much any of their, you know, so-called richest Americans were. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they've changed that policy, but, you know, these guys would just self-report. So, uh, you know, he he basically, uh, Trump has a long history of faking it before you make it. He did ultimately make it, but only after he was elected president did he really truly become rich. Yeah. Yeah, and now, uh, you know, we, we are going to see his children all uh, pay for their roles in it, perhaps, or at least, again, be, you know, be tarnished as he is being tarnished, which, uh, you know, I, I think is probably going to prove to be richly deserved. We'll see how that plays out and see if we do ever end up with with criminal charges. Um I also want to talk, Ted, we talked to you about Afghanistan quite a bit because, of course, you've spent uh, time there. John and I spoke last week on the show about the new Afghan fund the U.S. announced, which is to be funded with about half of the Afghan National Bank uh, monies we've been sitting on for a year or so. That money is now going to trickle through various banks and NGOs to reach in diminished form uh, the Afghan people. And as of yesterday, we have a new project, the Alliance for Afghan Women's Economic Resilience which I am told is a new public-private partnership between the Department of State and Boston University that is going to catalyze business, philanthropic, and civil society commitments to advance Afghan women's entrepreneurship, employment, and educational opportunities, both in Afghanistan and in third countries. Uh, I... I'm starting to get really dismayed at at how, again, uh, what seems to be happening is um, finding new ways to pay Westerners to sort of tinker around in a country that we have robbed, right, and and appear philanthropic. philanthropic. And so I wonder, you know, I I wonder if you see anything, like a net positive in these moves. It's a net positive in that some money is going to wake, is going to finally make its way back to Afghanistan, as you said. Michelle sort of filtered through and indirectly, but it's very neo-colonialist uh, mentality to steal some to steal a country's money and it is their money and then you know pay administrative costs to your people and to hire your vendors uh, to supply services that you decide upon. I mean, look, I'm I'm against charity for this exact reason because who's to decide uh, you know who should get say medical care or who should get, who's to decide? I mean, I think that should, that should be a public trust or who should decide who should get a college scholarship. That should be a public decision. Uh, in this case, not only is it charity, but it's charity from not even our money. It's from their money. Right. So it's a net negative, really, because it's, you know, we basically we are trying to dress up and gussy up theft as generosity. And, you know, if there's anything worse than theft, it's trying to make you, make it look like you didn't do it. Yes. 
and pat yourself on the back while you sort of redistribute a portion of the funds back to the people you took them from. It, it is it's it, once you start sort of seeing it in that light, it is uh, I don't know. It really uh, shifts your view of some of this phil- phil- philanthropy. <laughs> it's disgusting. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk about some news out of Israel and Palestine. At The Hague yesterday, Palestinian human rights group Al-Haq and UK-based research agency Forensic Architecture presented their joint report on the killing of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla, who was, let us remember, a U.S. citizen. The report confirms what a bunch of previous investigations had found, uh, but it also includes its own digital reconstruction of the incident that is based on previously unseen footage uh, that Al Jazeera staff recorded at the scene. They spoke to witnesses. They used open source video. They did a drone survey of the area. And they came to the conclusion that Israeli soldiers could clearly see Akla and others in their press uh, vests, that there were no people between Akla and uh, the other journalists and the Israeli soldier who fired the shot that killed her, that there were no shots fired by Palestinians in the minutes leading up to her killing, and also that a civilian who was trying to help Akla, after she was shot, was driven back repeatedly by more shots. And I will say, for anyone who's listening, uh, the the Alhaq video reconstruction is about nine minutes long. You can find it on YouTube. It is incredibly compelling. Um, it shows something I didn't know, which is that Sharina Buakla was killed in a second volley of shots at the journalist. The first volley wounded Ali al-Samudi, who ran with others after that round of shots. Shireen was then killed in a second volley. Um, And so uh, the report concludes that she was killed intentionally with the full knowledge that she was a member of the press. And so yesterday, the International Federation of Journalists, the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate and the International Center of Justice for Palestinians filed a complaint with the International Criminal Court on behalf of Abu Akla's family and the family of al-Samudi. I also, we have mentioned on this show before that senior Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy uh, has also been saying in, in the past week that, you know, these official reports by Israel into her death are not satisfactory, and we've got a law on the books with my name on it that says there have to be uh, repercussions for the, these kinds of actions. And so, you know, uh, I was going to say, Ted, I'm not going to ask you if anything's going to happen, but I don't want to be that cynical. And so I, I wonder if you think we will see anything more out of the U.S. government in, in response to this this move and this report, and whether we will see any kind of serious response from the ICC. In, this, in situations like this, you want to look at what sort of more corporatist mainstream uh, journalist groups like, C- like CPJ, Committee to Protect Journalists, uh, is going to do, or the National Writers Union, uh, are any of those kind of First Amendment groups going to weigh in on this? And if they are, then I think the pressure will build for something more substantial than an ICC investigation. I mean, the ICC is, you know, supposedly, it's, it's, you know, it's a UN body. It's supposed to be the court of last resort to settle disputes between nations. But in practice, it's really just been a way to, uh, to basically indict uh, leaders of the global south who have fall in, fallen into some kind of uh, dispute with the West, usually, typically the United States, 
uh, people like Gaddafi have been indicted there, um, the former president of Sudan and people like that. But it's, it's extremely sort of, it's got a Eurocentric kind of, uh, you know, colonialist vibe. And I can't imagine that, uh, you know, the cause of a, a dead Palestinian American uh, journalist who appears to have been murdered here by Israel, uh, you know, would be maybe murdered accidentally, let's say, like uh, they didn't know who she was, but they certainly knew she was a reporter, mm-hmm. you know, murdered. Um, is going to is going to is going to prevail there, but it, I think if it if the momentum keeps building, you know, if you get that mainstream, you know, once you get that New York Times op, you know, editorial in your favor, that's when things can can shift. That could still happen, but it could also just fade away. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the the worry that it will just fade away because, of course, we have seen. You know, the, this is. I mean, again, as I say, this is a very compelling and very damning report and includes some evidence that uh, it doesn't seem like anybody else had access to. But it's also, you know, the sixth or something such investigation. And the United States has already pretty, pretty decisively ignored the rest and issued its statement on how, you know, accountability is a good thing and wouldn't be nice if we had it. The end. Yeah, accountability. Um, well, you know, we we'd have we'd be living in an entirely different society if that existed. Yes. Let's also talk about um, uh, man, the the migrant transportation stunting. Ron DeSantis is being sued by migrants he paid to fly from San Antonio, Texas, to Martha's Vineyard. The lawsuit has been filed on behalf of these migrants who it alleges were fraudulently induced to travel across state lines by uh, these representatives of the state of Florida. This particular group of migrants says they weren't told about their final destination and were promised jobs and support services. DeSantis denies that they did anything illegal and has produced consent forms that uh, he says, uh, you know, show, demonstrate that these migrants agreed to be sent to, quote, sanctuary states. There were no states actually named on the consent form. And I will say to me, this is further proof that uh, DeSantis, in in trying to get in on the game of the week, has really uh, wandered in and botched it, right? Texas and Arizona have not been accused, uh, from what I've seen, uh, at least, you know, by by a lot of people, of lying to migrants or of sending them to places they weren't aware of. Um, you know, it, as far as I understand it, Texas and Arizona have have offered migrants places on buses that were going to New York, uh, Washington, D.C. How many agreed specifically to be dropped off at the Naval Observatory? I haven't actually seen. But, you know, they weren't necessarily, from what I can see, uh, being sent to parts unknown. DeSantis also, in this stunt, happened to send a a group of Venezuelans who Republicans are supposed to love and want to save. And so every aspect of this seems just comically bad, right? It could only have been dumber if DeSantis had done this to a bunch of Cubans. But you are also probably only uh, aware of all of the details of this case if you are reading way too much news. And so, you know, whether it is going to have any kind of negative impact on on DeSantis is is really uh, is really up in the air. And so I, I, you know, I I think that DeSantis seems to be pretty good at getting in on, you know, whatever is the Republican stunt of the day. 
and the most recent uh, hypothetical 2024 poll I have seen uh, shows DeSantis leading Trump in Florida in in the hypothetical 2024 primary. So, you know, I think it remains to be seen if he's shot himself in the foot or if he's capitalizing here. Tell me what you make of of DeSantis uh, botching his migrant busing or in this case, flying stunt so badly that he gets himself sued. Um, yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's interesting about DeSantis. Um, you know, I, I th- obviously this is a play that's meant to appeal to the Republican base. Um, and of course, it looks uh, very cruel, particularly, um, the, you know, this, the, his assistance uh, of sending the, uh, the, the Florida people to Martha's Vineyard who didn't know where they were going and were told they were going to go to Boston, which is, you know, I've been to Massachusetts. They're, Martha's Vineyard and Boston are really not the same thing at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd be very upset if you were diverted there. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's it's very, the question is, um, you know, it, how much will the fact that this plays into the liberal democratic narrative that the Republican Party is cruel and sort of proto-fascist uh, will motivate voters going into the midterms? And I'm going to say, I think this excites Republicans probably more then it dismays Democrats. Democrats, I think, are still focused really on on, uh, on the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But that also feeds into a narrative that the Republicans are cruel and uncaring. Uh, so, you know, a smart uh, messaging campaign by the Democratic Party could, you know, sort of ca- could categorize and, and, and frame the de- Republicans as this vicious, this group of vicious meanies but, you know, that, that would require a level of uh, competence in campaigning that I'm not sure we see very often from the Democrats. It would also require, I mean, I agree. I, I think that this, I, I think, unfortunately, that, you know, this is, the details of this are not going to be really public and that this is probably going to help DeSantis more than it hurts him. But, like, to actually counter it, you'd also have to have different policies uh, from Democrats. Because, again, they're trying to do what they do on crime, which is to offer a sort of half alternative. Like, we'll talk we'll talk about you in nicer ways, but are we actually going to, you know, uh, are we actually going to uh, provide a pathway to citizenship for uh, DACA recipients, for example? Or are we going to, um, you know, uh, treat immigrants better, be actually actually process you in, in a quick and humane way. I mean, you know, the, the Democrats are really kind of unwilling to budge much on immigration, even even though they talk about it quite a lot on the campaign trail. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, but I do think that I'm still going to, and also I think, you know, another advantage the Republicans have here is they do have a point when they talk about how uh, the southern border states have been left to deal with this problem and that the feds don't seem to be doing much to help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if you're a Democrat, you have to concede that that's true. I mean, what mm-hmm. the United States has is not a real border policy. We have sort of a uh, wink and look the other way. You know, sometimes we, you know, certainly there's some wall, there's some fencing, they, there's an attempt to catch people sometimes, but there's, you know, there isn't a coherent policy that no one crosses the U.S.-Mexico border unless they go through a proven checkpoint. Now, the current crisis doesn't have much to do with that, because we're talking about political asylum seekers who are presenting themselves uh, to border border patrol agents and asking for asylum. Uh, but, you know, that that's part of the story is a little too complicated 
for the typical American reader, or apparently for the typical American journalist to report properly. So people kind of think this is still, you know, people seeking jobs uh, coming from Mexico. And it's really not that. These are Venezuelans, mostly. Mm -hmm. I think that I think that's exactly right, Ted. And I think, unfortunately, you're right. This is sort of like you get the you get a really rough version of the story that doesn't represent uh, the actual issues at its heart. Ted Rawl, thank you for uh, staying with us through the technological hiccups that we experienced today. <laughs> Tell our Anytime. listeners where they can go hear you uh, w- without a delay and without any fuzziness. Uh, they can go to uh, Rawl.com, R-A-L-L.com. Oh, and they can get to the DMZ America and all that stuff from there? Yep, they sure can. Wow, how cool. <laughs> what, a great, what a great website. Ted, thanks so much for joining us. I am sure we'll talk to you again soon. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk about some economic news and see if the feds have come out and announced that rate hike already. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte, and we are talking now, of course, about the anticipation of another rate hike by the Federal Reserve. Is it going to be a historic third three-quarter point interest rate hike, or is it going to be a historic uh, full point interest rate hike? These these are the options uh, that are under discussion. We're going to ask what the repercussions of each would be. Also going to talk about the possibility of a a commercial real estate collapse and whether the withdrawal uh, of quite a lot of Chinese investment in that sector is uh, yet another harbinger of that event. Joining me to talk about these issues is Dr. Jack Rasmus. He's an economist, he's a radio show host, and he's the author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Thanks for being here, Jack. My pleasure. So yesterday, the Federal Reserve began a two-day policy meeting, which is expected to conclude today with another rate hike of three-quarters of a point, which I said would be the third in the row, a move that I see reported as without precedent in the U.S. economy. Either that or they go a full point, uh, which would also be historic. And this, of course, is being done uh, to combat inflation. This is the only way the United States is allowing itself to fight inflation, which continues to rise in almost all sectors, with the um, one sort of notable exception of gas prices. And so, of course, Jack, you know, what the Fed is trying to do is to, quote, unquote, soften the labor market, uh, which is a euphemism for putting more people out of work. And I wonder if you think that the rate hikes so far have been achieving that or, or achieving any other of the Fed's goals. Yeah, well, the consensus among economists is that there's an 80% chance that it'll be 75 basis points today and a 20% chance it'll be 1, 100. Uh, I think the former is more more likely, and uh, this will be the third 75-point rise. It's unprecedented uh, acceleration of uh, rate hikes, uh, and it's going to continue, whether 75 or whatever. Um, this isn't the last. Um, 
Uh, the Fed has clearly made the decision. It's going to precipitate a recession. It thinks it can do a, a, a mild recession. I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's what it's planning to do. Uh, and, you know, the whole thing about rate hikes is that uh, it attacks uh, the demand side, consumer demand. In other words, it takes out on the backs of households and workers and consumers uh, the inflation when two-thirds of the inflation is not demand-driven, it's really supply-driven, which the Fed and its rate hikes can't do anything about. Mm -hmm. It's uh, global supply chains, it's domestic supply chains, it's sanctions uh, that are driving up global energy and commodity prices and agricultural commodity prices. Uh, and it's uh, about one-third, I think, is just this uh, psychology of corporations and businesses of uh, price gouging because they can. Mm -hmm. uh, you see uh, huge increases in uh, processed uh, food where you have uh, uh, three or four producers, monopolistic producers in the United States, and in chicken, uh, chicken production up uh, prices up almost 20 percent uh you got three big producers there uh this the same thing with grains uh all across the board um monopolistic price gouging is about a third of the reason for the hikes about another third global and domestic supply chain problems uh including sanctions and uh, about another third demand as the economy has opened up so uh the fed is going to um Really, as it did in 1981, 82, you see, this is a repeat by the Fed. Uh, jack up interest rates to, uh, you know, astronomical levels and shut down the economy, create uh, massive unemployment, which they did at that time under Reagan. And uh, it's the same, um, same game plan here. Mm -hmm. Now, I predicted that they'll never get to the, 11, uh, the level of, uh, of rate hikes that they did under Reagan, which was like 15% policy rate hike. Uh, uh, the economy is much different today, uh, much more service-oriented, much more globally integrated, much more financialized. And I've been predicting for a year that should the Fed policy rate, that's the benchmark rate, uh, get to 5%, uh, you're going to see a deep recession. And I think that's where we're headed. You know, I, Jack, I feel like price gouging is going to be part of your answer to my next question, which is stocks were rising today ahead of the Fed's anticipated announcement. Uh, and so I'm guessing it's because this is just going to give them more cover uh, to profit while they pretend to be suffering along with the rest of us. Well, the, the stock market, stock uh, investors knew this uh, big next increase was coming, and, and they already baked it in last week. Uh, so what you see today is uh, uh, the hope uh, that uh, th this will be the peak. Um, and the stock investors have, have been doing that for all along. They've been saying, uh, oh, you know, rates have peaked, rates have peaked, and the Fed comes along and says no. Yeah. <laughs> and then they... Uh, stock prices contract uh, even further. You know, the, the, the S&P 500 is down about 15%. And uh, I predict that's only halfway there. Uh, you're going to see, uh, uh, you know, within the next six months, uh, I think uh, uh, the market uh, contract, correct, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, another 15%. Wow. I also want to ask about this article uh, that I came across today in Fortune magazine uh, that presents these arguments that actually inflation is good because it represents a uh, an economic shift that people should welcome. Uh, the shift that is described here is toward an economy that is way more online with 
fewer in-person workers in retail establishments, a lot more delivery orders, substantially more goods production, and substantially more information, entertainment, and production. That's the description of this new economy that we should be excited about. And for myself, the only bright spot that I can see is more goods production because people losing salaried retail jobs that sometimes have benefits to go to uh, Instacart delivery or, or any other gig delivery work is not a positive move in any way. Uh, and, and, you know, when you're talking about producing more uh, information entertainment, I, I think the number of people who are going to be able to afford whatever that is, uh, is going to be diminishing. And so I wonder, you know, I have two questions, I guess. How accurate do you think this picture of our future economy is? And if that's an accurate picture, who should welcome it? Well, I think the Forbes has kind of uh, put a positive uh, sheen on uh, the inflation uh, since they know it's going to be chronic here for some time. Uh, businesses like some inflation. Um, what they like is stability in the price, uh, not escalating or de-escalating, whatever, uh, so they can bake it into their uh, future pricing plans and so forth. Um, as far as, uh, you know, what they're talking about, jobs disappearing, um, you know, yes, uh, what were, you know, the part-time temp jobs of the last couple decades here <clears throat> that put people at a poverty level wages and gig work and so forth, uh, that's that's going to uh, even disappear further, I've been predicting, as artificial intelligence and other technologies take root in production <clears throat> and even distribution services. Uh, you know, McKinsey Consultants uh, estimated that 30% of the occupations in the U.S., uh, will either be reduced in hours or disappear altogether by 2030. Uh, so technology is going to ravage the labor markets even more, create even more lower paid, uh, and even more people, you know, taking on the two and three jobs. If you look at the job numbers here in the last couple months, yeah, uh, they've been creating jobs, but, you know, they're mostly part-time jobs. If you look at the latest uh uh, last two months in, in the U.S. labor market reports, 800,000 part-time jobs were created. Why, full-time jobs, according to one of the surveys in, in the labor department, have actually declined. So, yeah, uh, businesses are hiring, but they're only hiring people temporary and part-time because they don't know where the economy is going, and it's easier to lay those people off quickly uh, once the downturn uh, occurs. You know, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that because, of course, that's been something that I've been thinking, that, you know, when you look at these job reports, uh, just counting the number of people who are nominally employed does not really tell you anything about the financial well-being of the society as a whole. And to learn now that, yes, in fact, it's it's mostly part-time workers, uh, full-time jobs are, are going down. It kind of, uh, I mean, one, it, it's you know, it doesn't paint a picture of a, a very uh, financially healthy society. But you also wonder if this is going to have political implications for for uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats, because, you know, uh, Joe Biden has been pointing to these job reports as uh, evidence that his governance has been good and that his party deserves further confidence. But, you know, I, I don't know that these labor reports will really 
um, gloss over the fact that, you know, despite being employed, uh, people might not still have enough money to live on. And that might be more politically motivating than, you know, uh, reading a spreadsheet about how many people got jobs when yours isn't in jeopardy. And so I wonder if you think... um, the, the political repercussions are going to be maybe worse than some of the economic reporting or the the spin we've seen on the economy. Well, that's that's the big question. You know, uh, Biden and the Democrats are betting on uh, uh, discontent over the Supreme Court uh, decision, row decision, right? Mm-hmm. That that will mobilize people. They're also betting on uh, continue uh, uh, bogeyman. Trump bogeyman will turn people out. Uh, on the other hand, you've got um, even more people negatively impacted by inflation uh, and, uh, you know, working two or three jobs here. Uh, will that take precedence in terms of political weight when it comes election time over these other uh, Democrat strat- strategic points? Uh, and I think it will. I think more people are going to remember and be discontent over what's happened with the uh, economy and, and their situation. Uh, and, and the Labor Department uh, job reports are, are misleading. You see, there's really two reports within that report, two surveys. Uh, one survey uh, is uh, large businesses, large corporations, and uh, they seem to be stabilizing their hiring, uh, except for tech, which is laying off. Um, but then you've got the small business report uh, called the, the CPS report, and that's the one that shows uh, hiring is part-timers, you know, and the Labor Department doesn't distinguish uh, in in uh, some of its uh, tables, uh, whether, uh, you know, it's a part-time job or a full-time job. It's a job is a job. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what you get the, you know, the very low unemployment rate, you know, the 4.7, whatever. Um, uh, so it's very misleading, I think. The labor market uh, is not really picking up, uh, showing, revealing the weakness in the economy. If you look at, uh, you know, what's going on with construction and uh, going on in even certain sectors of the economy where manufacturing and certain uh, uh, service industries uh, and retail sales, which are very weak for this time of year. You know, they should be booming right now in September uh, before the uh, holiday here, uh, but they're not. Yeah. Yeah. We are going to have to save that question on a commercial real estate crash because we are just about out of time here. But Jack Rasmus, I want to thank you for joining us and ask you to tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work. Yeah, well, uh, you know, my articles are produced on my blog, jackrasmus.com, J-C-K-R-A-S-M-U-S.com. But, uh, you know, follow me for day-to-day developments on my Twitter feed at drjackrasmus. Uh, where, you know, news of the day I comment on. Mm -hmm. All right, Jack, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, With just our last minute left, I feel like I should note that uh, U.S. President Joe Biden spoke at the U.N. General Assembly today uh, offering, I don't know, can I say he offered sort of what you would expect he, you know, accused Russia of uh, of lying and attempting to wipe Ukraine off the map. He once again touted uh, 
the U.S.-backed Transparent Infrastructure Investment Program that uh, haven't seen very much from, but apparently is going to compete with China's Belt and Road Program. He um, pretty comically said that uh, the United States doesn't ask countries to choose between the U.S. and any other partner, which is, I feel like that goes beyond uh, fudging to just being an outright falsehood. Uh, And, you know, again, a day after it was made even more clear that Israeli forces executed a journalist with full knowledge and in cold blood, uh, he reiterated the United States' commitment to Israel's security. We will, I expect, get into a little more detail about uh, his address and what has been happening as the UNGA begins its annual debate. But we're going to have to pick that up tomorrow because we're out of time for today. Uh, I want to say thanks, of course, to all the guests that joined us and to our engineers and producers here. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Michelle Witte. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>